and welcome to the Produce Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Nickel, and today I am delighted to be joined by Jonna Parker, the Fresh Foods Team Lead for IRI. And in case you're not familiar with IRI, they collect and analyze consumer purchase data, they track shoppers' grocery habits, they look at channel shifting, product trends, all kinds of different things. And Jonna specializes in fresh foods. So beyond produce, she also has expertise in meat and seafood, prepared foods, baked goods, and beyond. I'm really looking forward to hearing from Jonna about what is going on in some of these other fresh departments and how produce can learn from those trends, ride the coattails of those trends, and otherwise take advantage of some opportunities that we might not really otherwise be thinking about. So Jonna, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the Produce Retail Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. I'm so excited to talk about this and to be able to just chat with somebody versus sitting behind my spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations. So thanks for having this podcast. And yeah, excited to jump in. Oh, absolutely. Well, tell me where we should start. I figured we'd go through some of these different fresh departments one by one and talk about kind of what's happening across the board and and then bring it back to produce. Sure. And I mean, let's even start at the macro food retail level or even beyond that, frankly. Um, We're now partnered with a company called MPD, so we can even monitor out of home spending on food. And one of the things that's really so remarkable today in 2022, as we reflect on this year, is that the shift of people being sourcing their food from home is still at a very high rate. In fact, it's higher this year than it was in 21. Now, it isn't all the way at the 2020 mark, of course, because 2020, we had lockdown and limited availability of out of home and mobility, of course, constraining our food supply to really be at home. And even in the grocery space, we couldn't even shop that much. So 2020 was truly an anomaly of a year in how we behaved and sourced food. But in 21, we started to go out a little bit more. We became a little bit more um, out of food and in or out of home in home minded. 22, because of the rising rate of inflation, not just in food, both at retail and out of home, but even in the macroeconomic environment, really did make food at home a little bit more of the priority. So as we're thinking about retail versus food service, it isn't to say that food service didn't have some bright lights. We noticed that people traveled more in 22. So things like amusement parks and, you know, places to gather that weren't in your hometown did do well in those sectors. Of course, colleges, universities, um, hospitals, offices, cafeterias returned in a way they weren't the last two years. One of the most interesting things, though, to get into retail is that out of home, a place where people were sourcing a lot of food and actually a lot more fresh food was on the go at convenience stores. Convenience stores this year saw about 4% more foot traffic for food purchases than they had in the last two years. Not only were we out and about more, we actually were snacking more. And further, to bring this into fresh and to get into the traditional retail channels, one of the most remarkable things about convenience store food is the retailers and convenience stores that did the best were the ones that had a lot of fresh food. So we know in the produce industry, we've seen a lot more of you know, gas stations and convenience stores and urban kind of food desert little pop-ups that focus on snackable, fresh, a lot of produce as well as deli and and baked goods, but less of the old donuts and Red Bull and more of, hey, here's a banana or here's a sandwich with some lettuce or here's a wrap 
you know, made from a lettuce wrap or even a wrap that was, you know, taking a salad on the go. Those foods are resonating with today's on the go shopper. And I think that's a lot of what that C store um, did. But getting into retail, um, within retail, food had, of course, a phenomenal dollar year, highest food and beverage sales for the retail grocery sector in the U.S. than we've ever seen. More than 2020, more than 21. And while, of course, price inflation was a big part of that, especially throughout the year and even late last year in fresh foods, we'll go department to department, but meat kind of was the meat and eggs were the thing most people talk about. As the year went on, center store foods, shelf-stable foods, frozen foods, non-edibles also have seen dramatic price increases. And therefore, the dollars are up, the unit and the volume is down. And one of the most interesting things about our retail habits is that, yes, we are spending more on each trip, but we're buying less items in the basket and going to more stores more often. So I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's certainly a lot to unpack. Like you said, inflation, I think, has has played a, a pretty substantial role in, in so many of these different behaviors. You mentioned going to you know different stores or, or more stores maybe than people traditionally would. I'm sure um, some of the discounters and the club stores have been the beneficiary of some of those things, if I remember correctly from your all's recent report. Um, I, I believe it was club stores, particularly when it comes to fresh, which interestingly enough, that's what we're seeing in, in my my household is <laughs> a, a little more Sam's Club when you get the deals on the bulk produce and some of those things. And um, so let's see, like you said, meat and seafood is certainly one that we've seen some big, big price increases on it. And as many folks still look at that as the center of their plate, um, you know, probably something uh, that's been heavily influenced there. What are some of the the observations you have on meat and seafood from this past year? Yeah, and I think to really start out with your point about channel shifting, the club stores and even the mass merchandisers, particularly Walmart, it's not just their value that are driving shoppers to those stores for fresh. It's that they're offering, there's two parts to it. Meat is the perfect example. There's a quality perception, especially with the club stores, that has really become even more synonymous than the fact that you have to buy in bulk when it comes to meat as well as other fresh produce, um, or other fresh foods, I should say. There's that quality that the Curculin Signature or the Sam's Club members mark. They're very choiceful. This isn't just about the old days of stack it high and watch it fly. Across the fresh departments, primarily leading with meat and seafood, they have really choiceful name brands, choiceful claims, as well as conventional product, and really strong transparency about where, how, what to do with this food. And the other piece that we've seen elements of that channel shift also exemplify in meat, but it also is in produce, is retailers like Trader Joe's or Costco, who basically say, you know what, I'm not going to carry everything you might find at your local grocer, but what I carry, I believe in. I'll stand behind it. You won't find it anywhere else or at this level of quality or value. And the more and more work we do with younger consumers they would rather someone curate, let's say, a meat selection than have an infinite amount of choice. And so I think that's really us in the industry often think about and, and tout, you know, I've definitely seen retailers lead in either the meat or the produce departments with, we have 10,000 choices. 
there's a whole segment of the marketplace increasingly who goes, oh my gosh, that sounds overwhelming and I have no idea. And I think that in the meat department is something we learned a lot in the last couple of years, that channel quality, but then that curation, the idea of the grocer as the trusted advisor in a way that I don't think the prior generations really did or set is really a huge opportunity. That makes so much sense, especially considering I think um, you know, with this, these recent generations who've grown up with so much competing for their attention, we think about social media and streaming and just all the different forms of things that, that are taking up mindshare, um, that weren't the case 20 years ago, you know? And so, um, learning, maybe learning everything from mom about how mom selected all the different items and, and the, the preferences that were developed, you know, I wonder if that's not quite the case in some of the younger generations as it is in the older generations. So they're happy to get, like you said, recommendations from someone who they believe knows on, hey, this this is the best one, right? We don't need to have 10 different SKUs in, in this particular item. He, here's the best three, pick from those. <laughs> and the best that fit for different solutions. You hit on mm-hmm. it. It's a little bit of a generational difference. It's a pace of life difference. You know, shopping and saving money for the family was kind of the bastion of a a, a baby boomer generation. A lot of heads of households saw that as their primary job. Mm. And now people are so busy, but they love food. I mean, again, we're seeing record high sales, not just because of price. I mean, the units are only down about half as much as the dollars are up. The trips are up, up, up. People are still buying what they like and they love. And meat's a great example of that to bring it back. While seafood has had a rough road from a growth standpoint because it it went, you know, supply was plentiful in 2020 because we saw the loss of the food service sector, which put a lot of high quality seafood on plates. I think that was also a boost for some of the produce elements as well. But as we hit 21 and now in 2022, the supply is constrained. There's some global activity as well as sustainability efforts and passing Seafood is still a very, among the folks who really want to make seafood their primary protein choice or the a key part of their diet are still consistently buying seafood. But the same is actually said for animal protein. One of the myths that we've busted this year, which I think is really important for everyone to know, is even as we started to look at the data and see that chicken was doing slightly better from a per pound basis than beef, than pork, when we started to pour into baskets, what we found was People did not change what they felt was essential to their diet or their personal preference. They constrained the volume. So while we saw beef decline, we did not necessarily see people switch from beef to chicken. They just bought less. And you know what? Frankly, they also shopped around within beef. I was just looking this morning with one of our our beef suppliers. We did a deep dive on switching in sensitivity in beef, assuming that someone's going to go from steak to a chicken breast. And while both saw volume contraction and some of that occurred, what really occurred more was people going, I want to have a steak, but which cuts on sale? So maybe even if I really prefer a filet mignon, I'm going to buy a ribeye because that's what's on sale today. And then I'm only going to buy two steaks. Whereas in two years ago and last year, I didn't know if I was going out again. So I bought six steaks and I froze four of them. And so this just in time, just what I need, especially in fresh, even fresh that you can freeze really became the point of contraction for the volume this year. Yes, because of price, but also because I hate to say it, but we're a society that's pretty used to getting what we want. And that sounds horribly facetious to say. I fully respect that. 
But if you're, you know, kind of like me, I'm a single mom of two teenage boys, I need to put food on the table. And sometimes what's easiest is the best, as opposed to knowing that I could have maybe like my a generation before me shopped to six different stores to buy just what's on sale. That's not how we're solving the meal this year. And I think meat really saw that. If a retailer got you in the door, you were thinking more about trading within the protein. And though increasingly, it was tough to even get people in the door if you were a high-low retailer. People were going to Costco. They were going to Walmart. Well, and I think it's it's a great point that you make too in terms of while price is certainly something that folks have been, I think, probably more cognizant of than in a long time, it's not really to the point where that's the only factor. It's still a very much a multi-layered decision and people aren't really wanting to to give up on on the quality and, and the preferences that they that they hold closest, I would say. And you know, the best two examples of that are in the deli and the bakery. Um, to kind of dovetail into that. We certainly saw elements, again, myth bust within meat, as well as I know you've probably talked about in produce. People for whom it was table stakes to have organic or certain clean label did not necessarily switch out. Um, it doesn't mean we gained a bunch of people <laughs> who suddenly wanted to trade up to those more premium attributes. <laughs> but there is a segment of the marketplace for whom clean label, certain sustainability metrics, as well as better for you, halo <laughs> attributes, those folks stayed with that for the most part. But when it comes to deli bakery, first off, those two departments saw the best cumulative growth in terms of both dollars, units, and volume of any department in the entire store. Wow. Going back, not just from 21 to 20, but even based on 19. So pre-pandemic. And so, yes, a little bit of the year-over-year -year growth is because a lot of folks think of deli and bakery as heavily in-store made categories, and those suffered in 2020. What ended up happening because of the pandemic in deli bakery is I think both of the departments doubled down on their needs to be part of a convenient lifestyle, a high-quality lifestyle that you can't replicate maybe at home, and increasingly this kind of entertaining as a lifestyle so one of the most important mega trends that I think we'll talk about throughout the decade, other than generational differences, is how now entertaining and celebrating the everyday is just how we eat. So whether it's, you know, I know that you're um, have a new one coming, but of course, then the world of play dates start for you. <laughs> so whether it's, you know, having the neighbor kids over and instead of, you know, kicking them all out for dinner, offer the mom and dad to come over and you all have, you know, a four person meal. But book clubs and Friendsgivings and celebrating each other around food. And that's something I really wanted to talk about today, because when I think about deli and bakery, just as you were saying, almost everything in those departments could be replicated either from scratch or even in another department. Like taking the deli, for example, there's sliced lunch meats, but you could walk a few aisles over and buy the tubs or the, the shingle pack lunch meat and not pay the same price per pound. And while there is a segment that did end up switching between the packaged lunch meat and the deli lunch meat, we also saw three quarters of the people who deli was part of their purchasing stay because the concept to them doing the deeper research is, well, gosh, I'm only buying a quarter pound or a half pound versus having to buy a pound, pound and a half over there. So I'm just going to eat what I I'm going to consume. So I've maximized whatever I spent versus wasting it. But I don't think of this as a trade-off between buying high quality premium deli meat and that package stuff. I think of it as I didn't go to Jimmy John's today. 
And so we've recently looked at the segments of, let's say, the sandwich continuum, right, of how the different ways you can make a sandwich. Obviously, food service is expensive, even though it didn't go up as much. I mean, it costs now about eight to nine dollars to go to a sandwich shop and get oh, a yeah. on the low end, on the low end. Right. And don't even try to feed multiple people or add some extra stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but you also then have that you could buy the cheapest type of cheese, bread and meat where we're seeing the growth and the majority of consumers gravitate is in that middle choice, either with a prepared deli sandwich, which have gone increasingly not made in store, but high quality prepackage. And again, people buying more high quality, just what they need to make just the amount of sandwiches that they wanted from the bakery, the deli, the, the high end cheese space, that whole continuum, you really think about the way we eat deli bakery is incredibly relevant today. And I think the fact that many of the top retailers are not necessarily doing everything in store, they're partnering with some phenomenal brands and produce and meat and, and baked goods to have really high quality grab and go. Again, going back to C-Store, the food there is extremely relevant, whether you're entertaining or eating every day. And I think that's why they're winning. Well, and you make a great point that I think more, maybe more now than than in previous years, folks are making that comparison between, you know, what you get at retail compared to what you would pay at food service. Because um, I know, I know that's something again in my own household I've seen right where I'm like, well, gosh, our our grocery budget has exploded, but we're not eating out, which would be twenty dollars, thirty dollars, forty dollars a pop, depending on what we were getting. So. You know, you, you can see how if you're eating more meals at home, you can justify pretty quickly, well, hey, I'm, I'm spending more on these higher quality items or on the number of items, but I'm saving over here in a pretty substantial way. And I think that goes back to the one of the unsung hero stories of fresh, really, in, in bringing it into produce, especially. Increasingly throughout the year, we study different pockets of the consumer uh, marketplace. And one of the spaces recently that we studied was on consumers who are on government assistance programs, SNAP programs. And we're able to actually isolate transactions in households who, I mean, obviously not <laughs> truly, you can't fully live on that program, but households who rely on that program for a decent portion of their transactions. And we did find that there were increases in several of the fresh perimeter spaces in a way that kind of confounded my center of store counterparts. And when I talked with them, I said, but remember, if you're thinking about your total grocery bill is going up, you're really thinking about, can I eat everything I just bought? And in fresh, you have the ability, not just for it to be convenient or healthy or whatever the other bigger attributes we talk about are, you can buy just what you need. You can buy just two apples. And sure, the price per pound is higher than if you bought a three pound bag. But if all you knew was that you only were going to take two apples to work this week, you were happy to just be able to buy two apples. The other aisles of the store, whether it be outside of meat, deli, bakery, produce, you have to buy a certain pack size. And especially if you are going to a larger retailer, you either a club store or a super center, even a discounter, typically those pack sizes are not for one or two people. You know, 70% of US households do not have children under 18 present. So we have this vision in our head, right, of CPG and, and food as being part of maybe your household or mine of, you know, mom, dad, two kids. Increasingly, US households are two people or less. And so again, Fresh offers all this tremendous benefits health, quality, premium, great flavors. But frankly, you can buy just what 
you eat. And this year, food waste became huge for everybody and especially cost-conscious consumers. So they stayed in fresh in some places more than they stayed in the bigger boxed package categories. And when you think about some of these different trends across um, across fresh departments in the store, what do you think are maybe some of the relevant crossover trends for produce are things that folks should be looking looking at in produce that either may travel over from some of these other categories or that produce can kind of latch on to and be like, oh, if you're buying more over here, you're buying this way over here, you know, how can we cross merchandise or how can we kind of dovetail on that? The number one thing I've said to the point where I joked with Anne-Marie and and other friends I have in the industry that maybe I'll just put out a sweatshirt, right? I'll have a tagline (laughs) is solutions, not silos. And I think one of the biggest things that we've learned in all of the cross trend is that consumers do not have the time, energy, or effort to be really thoughtful about your product. I know we could think of the 18, I'm literally staring here at some berries and some uh, kiwis that I cut up together. And I can't, as I was slicing the kiwi today, I was like, gosh, I really wish I should just pay extra and buy the pre-sliced ones. (laughs) I'm too busy. (laughs) And convenience, quality, of course, I was doing kiwi because I like the flavor, maybe more than just the cheapest fruit I could get. But convenience, quality, flavor exploration transcend all of the departments. And because they do, how do we solve versus silo? And I think in today's day and age that we're so digital, whether it be with e-commerce platforms, which don't require you then to go take a temperature sensitive item and move it to like a refrigerated department in a way we had to when it was all brick and mortar. We can do that inspiration digitally now. We can do it in an e-commerce cart with suggestive selling. We can also do it with things like the way we even merchandise in store with QR codes. One of the biggest things that I've been really excited about that I'm just starting to finally see, because we know that people are making meals at home, the meat department in many big retailers are starting to suggest how to prepare. Instead of saying, here's your beef, here's your pork, here's your chicken. Are you going to roast tonight? Do you have a Traeger grill? Here's some great things for the grill. And increasingly, I picture a world where there could be a QR code, which, by the way, we're all used to now because of all the menus that we have to do to open QR codes. That's right. Have a QR code there for that one consumer going, what pairs well with this? Well, the best things that pair well with a really good piece of meat is vegetables and wine, two areas where the retailer makes a tremendous amount of profit and two areas that are not ever going to be directly adjacent. So imagine just like at a restaurant If the grocery store becomes that suggestive selling location and where you can bring foods together, I've seen some really phenomenal things here locally at my local supermarkets here in Phoenix, bringing front of front of store for that consumer is just running in and going, I don't know what to cook tonight. Grab some thin sliced chicken breast. Oh, it's under cooking, cooking that quickly. Here's some steaming bag Brussels sprouts. That thoughtful solution about transcending convenience. And then in another aisle, there is an excellent display of someone about an instant pot, right? And here's things you could put together in an instant pot. And that's the kind of ways that people solve the meal today. And I think because of digital, because of the fact that the younger consumer is much more, as we talked about, aimed for that, growth in this industry is going to come from not just getting all of someone's basket, it's getting one or two more items in a basket. If you just think like the produce department, you won't ever get there, right? And I just think that solutions, not silos, are truly the future. And again, how do we make it if for the Epicurean consumer who's doing a lot of cooking at home, for the convenient consumer, all, all possible. 
That makes so much sense, especially in the context that you mentioned earlier of more and more people eating more meals at home, right? So if we know that they're cooking at home more than they're going out, that means they probably wouldn't mind some help in in putting things together and getting a little more variety into that rotation, I would imagine. Curation. There's some really fantastic things that we've seen. You know, we didn't really talk about the great mega board trend, right? Of how people are snacking more and doing things like charcuterie boards or snacking boards, even for desserts. And I think so much about the produce is what gets left off of those. But yet when you go to a really excellent place, like a higher end place, produce is always a part of those boards, right? Just as much as crackers are in with the protein and the cheese. So again, it goes back to, we've seen some really phenomenal things that even retailers like deep discounters like Aldi using QR codes to say, hey, we've worked with some chefs and here's some different foods in our store you can use to create the board of your dreams. The fact that the discounters and the club stores and people like Trader Joe's are getting all that credit for doing that just really makes me wish that, you know, you think about the infinite choice in a supermarket is the one we should be doing that at. But I think it's it goes back to in all of these solutions, even frankly, in baked goods where we see fruit flavors doing phenomenally well, produce is the one that could be easily left off that really needs to be jumping in. And when we think about kind of macro trends with with shoppers, what do you think is flying under the radar a little bit? Because we, we know inflation is a big driver. We know cost consciousness. Uh, we've talked about convenience here. What are some of the things that, that maybe folks could be missing as some of these other bigger picture things get a little more attention? The only thing that comes to my mind is I think what's flying under the radar is almost anything that you could talk about today probably has a group of consumers that exemplify it, that feel marginalized or not well reflected. And, you know, whether we want to talk about inflation and how despite price cost consciousness, consumers still want a well-rounded diet and good options, but how do we connect them with the best protein for the money, the best you know, here's some fruits that you can mix into your diet and, you know, just buy a couple and then you're getting all your vitamin C or vitamin whatever. So, you know, you could take almost any segment of the marketplace. It's so not homogeneous anymore. And I do feel like something I've learned in my now next year will be two decades in this industry, which astounds me, but it's true. Started with Perishables Group in 03. It is so astounding to me that all throughout the last two decades, If you play the middle, you're going to get squeezed. I can think about specific categories, specific products, and where you try to please everybody, let's say with a more mainstream, let's try to get this in as many mouths or get as many shoppers to put this in their basket as possible if you're a retailer, you're not going to win, especially I would say even more now in 2023 than in 2003. We're used to this personalized curated world. We can, even on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, find something uniquely to us and tons of, you know, two clicks, we can get whatever we want. The thought of us still marketing food at retail the way we did to our moms and dads and their moms and dads, there is a segment of the marketplace, of course. I think a lot of what we're doing today, you know, when we talk with older consumers, they are feeling a little alienated by it. But I've also seen that a lot of them are switching because of price, right? Whereas then you talk with a younger consumer and they're frustrated in some respects because they live their lives online and yet they can't get, you know, they're going to like a meal kit or a meal delivery service or DoorDash because they're not seeing what they need because they think it looks too much like what their grandma likes. 
we can't be all things to all people. I've brainstormed a lot about how, you know, the world of the future for food is maybe there's a, a physical store or an online store for someone who's a highly, you know, curated chef type home chef. One of my best friends has, she is an amazing cook and she laughs at what I buy because it's all convenient and pre-cut and yada, yada. We don't need the same store. And yet we both have the same store here in our neighborhood and neither of us are happy with it, right? So I think this all things, all people, stick with who your audience is and make that your central North star. The only thing that would fly under the radar is probably the markets that are decently sized. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, a few people. I'm talking about millions of people, right? There's what, like something like we've never had more people on this planet than we ever have. And there are segments of the marketplace that are horribly overlooked, but the only way to reach them is to focus on them first and make all your decisions second. When we study the great brands and the great success stories within Fresh, whether they be a brand or a product, they started with making a decision about who do I want to buy this? And then I'm okay if not everyone does. That's real marketing. That's real growth. And I feel like that's what we don't, that's what we keep overlooking. That is fascinating. Man, so so many directions to go just out of that. That's probably a whole conversation in and of itself. Separate. Again, you can dig site. <laughs> it's because each, and I think that is something we don't think enough about. Again, in my two decades in this industry, and it's not unique to Fresh. I mean, there are CPG companies as well that don't quite know their audience. But, you know, the example I'll give some here at the end is one that ended up benefiting produce is several years ago, big investment firms and, and market experts decided, and rightfully so, they looked at the landscape of the 2010s and said, you know, there's really a market here for meat alternatives, for things that eat and cut and sizzle like animal protein, but maybe are more plant-based because, right, people are feeling the environmental and potential health effects. There's a bit of a flexitarian or vegan vegetarian movement that they were feeling in the marketplace. And there was a market opportunity, right? Big companies spend lots of money to do these market opportunity sizing. And that was a definite one in the middle of last decade that obviously started to gain momentum, driven by two well-invested mega brand brand companies trying to enter the meat department. And what they learned was, wow, meat departments want this kind of thing. People are willing to buy branded, marketed things. The fatal flaw of that is, again, use an Anne-Marie quote, but meat alternatives became the soccer ball at a preschool, you know, kids game where everyone's just chasing the ball. I need more alternatives. I need more alternatives. I need more alternatives. They lost the root cause that those companies found in the market sizing. There are some consumers who want an alternative to meat occasionally because of nutritional and environmental benefits. You know who wins in that game? Polyflower. <laughs> <laughs> right at the end of the day, what ended up happening was there were too many products that didn't necessarily were able to convert as much of the audience as they might have wanted. And they lost, I think, in some cases, the ability to remember at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't want to eat meat, they can eat more plants. So what we've actually found is the meat alternatives market does have staying power. Again, the brands that are marketing to establish themselves with the original core consumer that we believe in the environment and we believe in you know, doing this for good reason, and they understand their marketplace. All the little Me Too brands that just said, people want to eat fake meat, they've been losing. But what actually benefited in the last year is people who tried a meat alternative mimic. You know what they're buying more of this year? Produce. 
Wow. Because at the end of the day, produce is actually the best plant-powered food you can find. And that's why I joked about cauliflower is, you know, in theory, we could take the cruciferous vegetables, show people how to grill them and hit the same market opportunity. But we lost sight of that. We lost sight of the original plant-based power food is the produce department. We didn't think about the who, we just kept selling the what. And you mentioned the branding and marketing part of this, Jana, and that brings me to kind of another another sort of topic along these lines, which is I'm curious what you've been seeing as far as a lot of retailers are investing in their their private brands versus, you know, these, whether they're CPGs or whether they're fresh brands, um, you know, individual suppliers who put a lot behind their marketing and their branding and those sorts of things. What are you seeing as far as consumer preferences there? Are they gravitating more to those private brands or, or where does that kind of stand? You know, it's different in Fresh than in Center Store. Our, my counterpart who covers private brands in Center Store is actually going to post a study. We're recording this at the end of November. It will be up by the 1st of December. Um, going to focus on the Center of Store because during a recession period, obviously where parity quality is viewed, you will see switching between you know, serious, well, it depends on the category, right? But if there's parity quality perceived, but a cost savings, consumers will switch with branding. Again, key being parity quality perception. I think branding in fresh is an interesting thing because frankly, there's three types of brands in fresh and we forget that. There's what I call commodity unbranded. We're talking about a generic PLU code where there's a bin of TOVs, right? And they have several different stickers. And today it was supplier A and tomorrow it's going to be supplier B, but really you're buying 4664 tomatoes on the vine. You can tell I've done this a while because I know the PLU code. However, um, you're then deciding more on how many do I want and do I want organic or do I, and do I want TOVs or do I want Romas? Branding has nothing to do with that equation. But what we're increasingly seeing is there are retailers who are, um, there then could be a private brand of, let's say, a certain type of tomato. But then there also might be a third-party brand. And we are seeing across fresh, whether in produce or meat, deli bakery, that we're seeing growth, not necessarily the commodity, we're seeing growth of the private brand and the third-party brand. And the reason we're seeing both is some retailers, the private brand is marketed and does have a halo. And really you're gaining that as a tremendous benefit. I think we can all think of retailers in this country who have that zoomf, right? That little bit of, oh, I've got this here, little bragging rights. And then there's the fact that every retailer has a private brand. You also have some retailers that only carry private brands, both on the discount spectrum and, and the main spectrum. The third party brand growth is coming, not just because I think too often in fresh we say, I'm a marketer. I have a brand. But our consumer budgets are so small. And that's what sets a brand apart. Not your trade marketing. Not your price parity. And frankly, I hate to say it, but not even your, you know, at the grower quality level. It's do I stand for something? Who do I stand for? I think we'd all agree that one of the most tremendous branding success stories of the last few years is in Clementine's. And you think about the amount of money that was spent by the companies that launched those brands was unheard of in produce. I remember working on those projects and it was jaw dropping and I wasn't even yet exposed to what people were spending in CPG and people were just like, what are you spending? To this day, my kids who grew up with those products call little oranges, cuties and halos. Mm -hmm. That's branding. That has nothing to do with being little orange. That's branding. 
And I'm not saying that everyone needs to spend an ungodly amount because we gain something that the candy bars and the sodas don't have. People want to eat our foods, but why should they eat Jana's veggies, right? It has to be in the story and the feeling and the marketing. And that's where I'm so excited. I know there's a lot of work across the spectrum of fresh, especially in produce about brands that mean something. And it's exciting. I mean, I think we think we are seeing the most third-party brands that we've probably ever seen in produce. Yes, then many retailers, of course, will hit the the peak where then they want it to be private brand, the difference will come down to, I mean, to this day, there's still not a lot of private label soda pop sold. So it'll come down to what are you investing to make your brand the draw to that retailer? I also think we have to reflect that in fresh retailer assortment varies, right? The brands you see at one retailer are different. That doesn't happen in the cereal aisle or the frozen foods aisle. So if we are going to really go big on a brand, it has to be how does that brand draw that retailer destination? Or if we look at the deli and a retailer, you know, one thing is Boar's Head and Dietz and Watson. They choose who they partner with and they commit to that retailer. That could be a great path for produce branding as well. Yes, it means you have to be very choiceful. You're not going to hit 100% distribution. But if you can commit to the quality, those brands have become destinations to delis. I'd love to see that with produce, some exclusivity varieties and brands. I know the berries category has done it in the past. I think there's a lot of opportunity with that. It's fascinating to me that you mentioned Boar's Head because um, when I was doing a, a virtual new store tour here recently, one of the things that um, the gentleman who was taking me on the tour stopped at was their deli counter and the Boar's Head program. And as I was looking at all the point of sale material that they send over when they establish with a retailer and giving you, you know, the different thickness of cuts that you can ask for at the counter. And he mentioned how, you know, their merchandisers came out and trained the folks who were in the stores and some of those different things. You see kind of how that could be a template. Um, And certainly, as you mentioned, too, with the halos and things like that, we know that they have some similar structures as far as point of sale material, as far as out in the field merchandisers and some of those different things. Um, Certainly no small investment, but it does give you an idea of some of the paths that can be taken uh, to really invest in those brands and, and target a little bit of your trade audience and your consumer audience together, probably. Yeah. I mean, the DSD and the concept of investing store staff is very important, but I think now we're also in an age where advertising outside of the store has an extremely level playing field. And the ROI now, or they frankly call it ROAS, right? Return on ad spend. Because of the digital targeting capabilities, even of radio, even of television now with the streaming services, is phenomenal. And we've done a lot of work on how easy it would be to take the same out-of-store advertising budget, but target your audience. So think about this, right? We know that there are a plethora of Apple varieties, out there. And I think the most things that we hear from consumers and our sentiment work in that category is, well, I don't really know which one should I do. And then I go to this store and they have these, and then I have those stores. And I know I like Honeycrisp because I tried Honeycrisp. My friend likes Honeycrisp, but what else, right? Like that's how we're teaching people about apples. And yet we have, I think we track something like 75 varieties just at our main level, not even our sub variety level. So you think about if you've got, let's say that we've created a new apple variety, right? The Ashley Donna variety, and we've bred it. So we know that it bites like a Granny Smith, but has the the sweetness of a Honeycrisp, right? 
and a thin skin, like a whichever. We now know three different apples that we base this on. We could go serve ads right now via social media, even terrestrial television to people who've bought those three apple varieties before. That's our most likely audience, right? That's who we made this apple for. And we could have an ad outside of the store that talks about why you should do the A and J apple if you like these other three. That's how every other food is marketed, even in food service now, right? I mean, Burger King and McDonald's know who they're after and what they're targeting. And I might get a different ad for McDonald's than you might get. We can bring that to fresh. And then by the way, we don't need to take out a Super Bowl ad. We don't need to have you know, every television from coast to coast running our main thing. And I think that's really just what's so exciting about being a brand marketer today. Yes, you still then need to get the distribution in that store. But if you wanted, let's say you got, you know, let's say we got A&J Apple in Topeka, Kansas. We could run ads just in Topeka, Kansas by the Granny Smith, you know, Honeycrisp buyers out there. That's an incredible amount of return on ad spend. And I think looking at that metric with a CPG lens as opposed to a produce lens, because every dollar spent in out-of-store marketing for produce is like a what? But if we really look at benchmarking, honestly, when we've done the work, the fresh foods, because people want to buy them anyway, really do an even better job of return on ad spend when you're very choiceful. And I think that's what's so exciting about brand marketing today. And even a minimal investment in the right way can really have an impact. Excellent. Well, Jana, I'll, I'll give you one more because I know we're, we're running out of time here, but that the branding and marketing, the different channels and ways to hit consumers, what you just led into was kind of my, my last question, which is there's so many different avenues through which to reach shoppers today. What are your thoughts on, on where, where we see that resonating most with, with fresh and for folks with, of course, you know, limited budgets, limited manpower, it's hard to pursue all those different options at once, how to kind of curate and and hit folks in those spots that are going to be most impactful. I'm going to spin the question a bit and say <laughs> that the answer to which vehicle you should use resides in who your consumer is. We've done some work with some specialty produce companies and who for each of some of their varieties, it could be a different medium, Right. And I think that's the question, again, we should be asking, who are we trying? And the who, you know, is incredibly interesting, too, because you don't have to say the amount of work we've done, right, over my career that people are like, moms with kids, everyone's after moms with kids under five. I'm sorry. Everyone is, (laughs) right? Nobody, I laugh because deli prepared foods are most commonly purchased by older single men who are the baby boomer generation. And I always say that's demographic nobody went home went to college to like go after right and yet they buy those you know prepared burgers and droves so going back to it what vehicle would maximize your budget starts first with who buys your product today that you want to get to buy more or if your product's new or your brand is new or you're entering a new market what other things are that we can actually derive the who from what they're doing today. And then we can turn on that. This is the power of big data. And it's not that you have to buy an entirely huge database, which is what IRI is known for. We've done projects for many a produce and fresh group, which is just, hey, I'm launching this thing. Can you tell me who's most likely to buy it? And then what media, what cities, what media, what even stores should they, are those people shopping, viewing, doing? And then that becomes the best way to maximize your vehicle. And when I've done that work, I've learned not to assume, 
right? We get a lot of folks who call us. We are known. We can use our data to run Facebook audiences or Instagram audiences or lately TikTok audiences to curate your TikTok advertising to a specific purchase-based audience. But a lot of times lately I'm going, but why did you choose Facebook, right? Why did you choose? And usually folks are saying, I don't have a big budget. Well, you could have done TikTok or maybe this other website would be better, right? And that's It's less about what should you do and more about who are you doing it and then do whatever it is that will help reach those people. So, well, John, I know we've, we've covered a lot of ground here and I know we could cover a lot more, but um, man, talk about it, an infinite slate of opportunities, I think for produce, which is really, really exciting. Any, um, any last, last things you want to mention before we wrap up? No, just that I think that, you know, I love being part of these conversations. So feel free for folks to reach out to me on LinkedIn um, through you, obviously, through our other channels. But I think it's um, really important. I mean, I've personally chose to work in this industry and I hope to work in it for decades to come because there's so much opportunity, as you said. There's, I mean, I know, I know that the world has changed so much in the last two decades in terms of how we market fresh. It's really exciting to see what's going to happen over the next couple. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Jonna, for being with us. Thank you to all of our listeners. And we will see everybody next week on the Produce Retail Podcast.